Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration podcast where four friends come together to share movies and talk about them and sometimes broaden our cinematic horizons. <laughs> Do you feel broadened yet? <laughs> pretty, pretty broadened, I think. I'm Scott Murray, and I'm joined today by my uh, friends on my strange journey through this reality we call life, Joel Lewis. Hello. Tim Gerard. Hello. And Zeke Perez. Hi. By the end of this podcast, you won't know anything more about who we are or what we're doing here, but we will have done some things, and hopefully you'll be entertained by them. <laughs> but don't count on it. Uh, count on it. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, for those of you unfamiliar, every month on Movie Mumble, we uh, take turns picking a film, and then we watch it, and then we talk about it. There are no rules about what we can pick. They can be new or old, foreign or domestic, live action or animated, a film we've seen a million times or never seen before. Uh, the whole goal is, of course, to force our friends to watch things they might not otherwise watch, uh, but in a good way. Right? <laughs> discover things we wouldn't otherwise discover. And uh, it's all based on the idea that we get more out of the cinematic experience when we share it with each other. That's proven to be true episode after episode. At the end of each episode, we'll announce what we're watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. And we don't withhold spoilers for anything. Actually, we actively spoil them with our plot summaries nowadays. Uh, so if you're worried about that sort of thing, you should watch a film before listening to its episode. And this month, Joel was our movie selector, and Joel brought us Red Desert. Do you want to introduce your film, Joel? Sure. Um, so at the end of last episode, I did kind of summarize it, but I will give another summary. Uh, summary. But kind of like how I discovered the film. I, again, I was going through the Criterion Collection films on Canopy, and it was another one that I had just read the description, saw that it was from the 60s. It was an Italian director. I'd threw, thrown it on a list. I think I was watching Playtime, and then this was kind of the next one in the queue. And I, I watched it, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is, but I'm kind of in love with it. And then just fast forward to, in, in classic Joel fashion, um, watching all of his other Criterion Collection movies. I've watched... La Ventura, Le Clese, La Nota. Um, I have an identification of a woman on my shelf I haven't gotten a chance to watch. And then Blow Up, um, which is another big one of his. So I, I just fell in love with the director. Um, it's very stalker-esque, kind of the way it's paced. It's very internal, um, very industrial, very um, exploration of Italian neorealist post-war ennui but sinister ennui and dissociation from reality which i think is really compelling and interesting um so just a little summary uh juliana navigates the disconnect from reality she's begun to feel following a dangerous car wreck um set against the bleak industrial wasteland perpetuated by her cold and distant husband um who is a uh industrialist Film follows an ill-fated love affair between Juliana and her husband's American friend or German friend. It's unsure. He speaks English. Um, he's Richard Harris. Um, and it's an ill-fated love affair between him. Zeller is the name of the character and Juliana. And it, it goes it goes poorly in, in Italian style. Divorce Italian style is very uh, it's a film in, in, in the canon, but it's also a very italian film sensibility is that any any it's the classic love tale between a man and another man's wife <laughs> that, that's kind of what a lot of these films kind of explore 
Yeah, I I really enjoy this film. It is not a nail biter in terms of plot. She just, like Juliana, who's portrayed by Monica Vito, possibly my favorite actress of all time. Just she has this alien um, energy. The way she moves in a scene is is in, unpredictable. I don't know how they blocked her. I don't know if they blocked her. I don't know if he. Antonioni used her in most of his films. She was his muse. And the the things that she does for performance is just incredible to me. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you guys about it. I know it's, it's not, not some of our favorite kind of film, but I hope we can have a discussion about it. So there endeth the lesson. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I don't know whether it's not some of our favorite kind of film. It's certainly relates to a number of other films we've seen on the podcast. So I guess you could say not our favorite, but it's certainly something we appreciate, undoubtedly. Uh, Should we move on to first impressions and then sort of dive into the discussion from there? Uh, Tim or Zeke, do one of you want to start us off? Um, I'll I'll go first so that um, (laughs) Zeke can hopefully say something um, nice and intelligent after me. You're letting Zeke back (laughs) clean up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There you go. (laughs) Um, so I, I think what helped was having seen, uh, um, funny games. Oh shit. I didn't know you've seen that. That's awesome. No, wait, what's the one that the other one that we watched of yours? The stop. Oh, playtime. Walker. Playtime. Yeah. Playtime. Funny games. You know, (laughs) sounds like it's (laughs) a a very different film. (laughs) Very, very different film. (laughs) I think you've brought that up before. Maybe that, why that's, that, that was in my head. It's on Scott and my list. We I have, think we're playing yeah. chicken. Yeah. Who, who's going to bring it? <laughs> I might bring the original. He'll bring the shot for shot remake in English. I mean, does that, <laughs> does that stream anywhere? Right. We'll see. We'll find it. <laughs> yeah. So please come, go ahead. So, yeah. So I think I, I, you know, I wasn't expecting, yeah, like sort of, a, 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 a anything. <laughs> it was just kind of like, okay, go along, go along for the ride, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, I think that probably the, the thing that I very quickly like latched onto, which I think is the point is, is her, you know, just kind of her moving through the world and how she's um, just sort of acting, reacting in it. Um, and just sort of kind of, you know, I thought it was, it was interesting. You kind of very quickly be like, okay, something's not quite right with her. The whole thing with her, like buying the sandwich from the guy and like eating it in private. And it's like, okay, like that's, that's not normal. It's nothing scary, but like, what, what's up with that? Like, why isn't she just eating it? And, and where's her child? Like she totally left her child to go eat this sandwich. It's like, okay, something's not right. And I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it was very uh, sort of just like, here's, here's life. You know, we're not going on this, uh, this hero's journey or anything. It's just like, here's a bunch of situations you're in and stuff's happening around you and you're kind of reacting to it. And, how you react to it isn't how most people would because of this condition, because you were in this car accident. It's like, okay. And, you know, I feel like, you know, that gave us a, a, enough of a, of a backstory to just be like, Oh, okay. When she's reacting kind of not normal to the situation, like this is why. Okay. And then, yeah, I feel like it was kind of helpful to bring in like, okay, there's this little twist, this little love triangle. Like here's this guy, he's obviously interested in her. And um, I like, the the interaction where you know they're a lot of times they're in close quarters like you know with her husband even and it's kind of just like this weird um 
you know, this weird sort of like you can kind of see it in his eyes and on his face, but he's trying to not do anything about it. But, you know, um, and uh, yeah, and then it just kind of moves through some things. And I, I think a lot of it for me, too. I read the description on Canopy afterwards where it's this whole like, you know, this industrial setting. And, and it was interesting, too, because I think it even meant, used the word like post-apocalyptic, you know, which was like... It doesn't look post-apocalyptic. It looks like just here's where a bunch of, you know, factories are and people are doing shitty shit, like polluting the air and polluting the water. And it's like, that's just, that's just life. That's not post-apocalyptic. You know, that's just the way we live, you know. Um, so it was kind of weird. I mean, I must have had a much different, it must have hit much different in the 60s, you know, because it, you know, it was probably intended to be this kind of like cautionary tale. And now it's just kind of like, yeah, no, nah, fuck it. You know, where where else is this smoke and sludge supposed to go, you know? Um, so, like, you know, that part of it, it wasn't, um, I think it wasn't as shocking to me. So because of that, it was more just like, uh, yeah, like, I, I I feel like, you know, the, the sort of post-apocalyptic things we're used to are way more drastic, you know? Um you know, so that way, you know, like a Mad Max sort of thing, this dystopian world was just like, holy shit, like, yeah, like shit has really gone bad here. Whereas this was just kind of, you know, sort of the opposite of like with 1984, we got to 1984, or maybe the same as 1984, like, oh, we got to 1984, and the world wasn't like that. Whereas with this, it's like, yeah, so it is the opposite of 1984. We never quite got to what 1984 was. Whereas with this, it's just like, yeah, we're we're there. Like this is this is this is our world. Like this isn't some scary possible future world. Um, so then it just kind of like sucked living in that world, you know. And it was just kind of like I, I feel like there was a lot of a visual element to it. And um, like my hometown is kind of known for being like a big mill city. So a lot of it just kind of looked like my hometown and was just kind of like, you know, too, too familiar in that sense, too, like too, too normal, you know? And it was just like, okay, this isn't, uh, this is just uh, new England. <laughs> yeah. Like this isn't, this isn't, like I said, it's not some cautionary tale to me. This is just sort of like, all right, you're, you're back home driving down the street and like, Oh look, there's a mill and there's, there's a lake or a river with a bunch of sludge just sitting in a puddle because it's not running off anywhere. And there's, you know, smoke. There's actually, there's a part, I think this is technically in Blackstone or Bellingham, but there is like a place where I think there's this huge, it looks like a hill, but I think it's supposedly they actually put like sod, I think over a bunch of garbage and there's like a smokestack coming out of it where I think like the stuff is like burning underneath there and like smoke. So I forget exactly what the story is. I just remember seeing like, there's a hill and you're like, Oh look, there's a hill. Like it's nature, like it's dirt and it's like actually garbage. And that's why there's a smokestack coming out. So, so there was a lot of stuff like that where it was just kind of like, okay, like I would, I would leave this place, <laughs> you know, like this is, you know, you did um, leave that place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would leave it again. So, so that was kind of like, I think part of it for me was it wasn't, it wasn't shocking in the way of like, you know, Oh man, look at this world. We better, we better straighten up, you know? And it's like, I feel like, you know, at this point too, it's also kind of like a, a preaching to the choir kind of thing, you know, where it's like, like, yeah, I get it. Like this, this, all this stuff sucks. We shouldn't be living this way, you know? And it's not, it wasn't something that kind of turned my mind around about something like, Oh yeah, maybe we should stop polluting 
the world. Yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, like don't, don't shove this in my face. Like I, I get it. Like, I don't, I don't like this either, you know? Um, so, so yeah, maybe that, maybe I guess that's part of my point is that like the, the visuals weren't as, they weren't as powerful to me because they were familiar that it hit me on a different level. Like, you know, and I feel like it was only that it only hit me that way because of that familiarity, not, you know, like, um, you know, again, like I, I know this is a drastic example, but something like Mad Max, like Mad Max is really like, makes you think like, Oh fuck. Like how, how did the world get here? What did we do to get here? And you kind of cycle backwards through that and try to figure out like what missteps did we take? So for this, it was, yeah, it wasn't about sort of reverse engineering this world. It was like, this is the world, you know? I mean, like, you know, even, even with, you know, something like Blade Runner, you know, you know, like you look at that and it's like, okay, this is this kind of like a world that's much more similar than a lot of crappy sci-fi, but, but we still want to think back, you know, in that idea of like, how did we get to this world? What, what, what evolved in this way, but what stayed the same to still have like the kind of, uh, the, the realness, you know, what gives the world that realness? This was just all realness. This was just all like, like. Yeah, like there's no wondering how we got here. We know how we got here because we're we're there. We've seen it the whole time, and we've been pissed at it the whole time. Um, so, yeah, one one thing I did kind of enjoy was the whole, like how for the opening credits everything was like out of focus, mm-hmm. and then kind of we start to see certain things from her perspective, and we're seeing these kind of out of focus colors, and I was kind of like, okay, that's like a cool connection. Um, again, sometimes I felt like it was a little a little subtle. Like I was kind of like, or that one part at the end where she's like, Oh, he's like, what are you looking at? And she's like, Oh, over there. And it's like, okay, she's not quite right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, yeah, maybe that would be the, okay. If I had to summarize this in one word, it would be like subtle. And not that that's a bad thing. I think it was more just like in terms of keeping my attention Again, because of what I'm, what I'm used to, um, and I guess that's part of it too. Is it's not, it's not that the, I didn't like the journey because it was kind of cool, like following her through these situations, like being in these weird, like when they're tearing down that little shack, and I'm like, why are they just tearing this down, breaking it into pieces? Like I get it if they're cold, but it's like, and maybe I just missed something, like I forgot why they were there. Um, but yeah, maybe it would be interesting to see this remade more modern and kind of have this dystopian world be something that, that we see now as what, what we consider dystopian, not our, our present. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, so I don't think it was, I, I didn't dislike the film. I think maybe my problem with it is more being dated and I have that trouble with a lot of stuff. Like a lot of things that everybody loves that I don't tend to appreciate as much. It's like, oh, well, that's probably because that thing is from the past. And I can acknowledge why for that a great thing. But given all that we've learned since then and all that I've learned and all I know since then and all that I've grown to appreciate, a lot of times it's like I, I have a hard time. And I can appreciate it in context, but I can't necessarily enjoy it. So that. That's my explanation slash apology slash <laughs> justification. There's, there's no need for an apology. I mean, like, I, I, I guess I keep bringing stuff like this because it's stuff that I, I would never have watched 
with friends. I think that, I mean, going back to like the basis is like, I'm, I'm really interested to see if these hit, things hit anybody like they hit me. Yeah. So it, it's, well, I, yeah, I'm, you know I'm interested in hearing your, like, your thoughts about it because I want to, I want to, I want to be shown sort of like what I, what I miss to appreciate about it, I guess. Pulling a Tarzan. Yeah. I want to know. Can you show? No, we don't have the rights to that, no. so I'll have to edit that out. No, but thinning, thinning isn't covered. It's only the actual music. <laughs> okay. It's yeah. a parody. <laughs> How about you, Zeke? What did you think of Red Desert? I liked it a lot. Um, and it was interesting. I'm glad Tim went first because hearing him talk through it, like he hit a lot of the same notes, but like we ended up in different places. Um, so I was just trying to jot some things down to think through um, you know, a little bit more about how I felt about it. But I think one of the biggest things for me that this did was made me reflect on what is the recipe for, for me liking a movie like this. Um, and again, comparing it to the other picks um, that were similar paced or similar uh, focus or, you know, lack of a focus or less plot driven. Um, for whatever reason, I like this one. I don't know if I was just in a mood for more character-based uh, story and more character progression visuals, right? I think in other cases, too much focus on those things has taken me out of it. I'm like, well, what was the point? What was the plot? Why wasn't there a twist? But for whatever reason, I enjoyed uh, the ride with this one. Um, I think there was enough edge and mystery for me um, to keep it going and to keep me locked in. And I don't know. I think I, had the same thoughts to him about like remaking it. What would that look like more modern? But I didn't even really want to go to the, to the dystopian or to the industrial side of things. I just wanted this remade again. Um, with, I guess just a little bit more of a thriller's edge. And like, I don't know if that means that there would be in this modern version, a bigger twist or uh, I don't know but there was just something sinister kind of lurking through all of it. Um, Joel, I think when you said, you know, she's very alien and how she moves and how she interacts and the ups and downs. Um, I don't know. I just think it did a good job focusing in on her and watching her progress throughout the movie and how she interacts with people um, and capturing that mental health or that, uh, you know, her, her, her frame of mind after coming off of an accident and how her life changed and how she's adapting to everything. And not necessarily wanting to see that in a, in a horror way or to make that kind of um, the bad guy or the, or the problem. Right. But it, it was just an interesting journey to take. Um, so I'd be interested to see it remade again with that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if any of you all have watched uh, white Lotus yet. Um, oh. Been a lot of buzz about that. And so often and binge that show. And it's another one that's just, uh, there's a lot of plot, but I think what makes it great is the character focus. So I don't know if catching me after watching that, I was just in a character driven mood. Um, I love the visuals in this, I think, and, and the settings and the pacing and um, I guess the uh, stories behind some of the scenes. So when I say that, what I'm thinking of is the uh, shack scene where they're all together. And for whatever reason, I was getting some, solid like 12 angry men vibes and i don't know if it was just because everybody's in one place and it's old but for whatever reason just the energy that everybody had and um it's also the know. sexual tension there's a lot a <laughs> lot of love in that 12 angry men <laughs> right <laughs> fair <laughs> but just how you know one character might 
do something small. So, um, you know, when she finally decides they're talking about the quail eggs and she reaches and grab one, grabs one and eats it. And everyone's looking at her like it was the weirdest thing in the world to do. Just how one little action, because they're trapped in that room together, not that they're trapped in this case, but they're in that tight space together. And that's the focus. One character's action kind of triggers every other character's reaction. And so I really enjoyed that section of uh, the film and just seeing how they played off of each other, even if they were minor characters, I think they accentuated um, again, her ups and downs and ebbs and flows throughout the movie. So uh, yeah, I think for first impressions, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I liked it and I liked the pace and I liked just getting to spend time with the characters and her acting was phenomenal. So I think that made it for me too. All right, Scott, what about you? My first impression was that it was familiar and I couldn't quite place why. Um, I mean, I guess familiar to certain other Italian films or certain other, you know, stuff like Stalker has a similar sort of wondering vibe, which we watched on the podcast. And then at the end, I kind of placed it at the end, well, at the end, I didn't get it. I was thinking there's something fundamental about Italian culture that I'm missing that is the key to understanding this film. And then I was reminded of The Conformist by Bertolucci and then of all the other discussion about Italian film I had when I was in school. And I went, oh, right, struggling with self-identity. Duh. And everything <laughs> clicked into place. And that was it, right? It was, oh, duh, yeah, there you go, struggling with self-identity. So... In that regard, it, it slots very neatly into my understanding of Italian film. Um, but I really liked this a lot because it was so sort of unmoored from time and space, but like in a way that was still on Earth, right? Not like a fantasy movie, but just like, here's the present. She already at the factory. The factory is where her husband works. So that's why she's there. You know, here's the town whatever like there was no you know it didn't feel like these places had been picked out significantly to specifically represent something that they were just the way things were in this place right now and that's just why things ended up that way and it lent a very i don't want to say authentic right a very sort of relatable feel i guess to to the sense of being in the here and now right the only thing that felt even remotely constructed was the ship arriving at the shack and even then, that didn't feel like it didn't quite feel as it didn't feel contrived the way some films do when they have to like set up a certain sequence of events. You know, the whole rest of it really just felt like we were following this woman through a crisis of identity from wherever she happened to be. It was a really good film. I don't know if I necessarily had fun watching it, <laughs> um, but I. I was definitely glad to have watched it, and I'm certainly eager to discuss it. I don't know that I'll go watch it again, necessarily, if that makes sense. Maybe as a discussion piece, particularly, but I don't know that it jumped beyond that for me. Gotcha. Something uh, on on second watch that I was noticing, it's like, it, it, it's it's slow. It's long. It's slow. Um, it, it's one... Oh, go ahead. But it is comfortable. I, I, I was going to say earlier, it's not... It wasn't hard to watch, either in the sense of being gruesome or in the sense of being a slog. You know, I watch some films and you pause them every 10 minutes and you go, oh, my God, the film's still going. And you, know, you pause it again. Oh, we're not even halfway there. You know, this was not like that at all. I just settled in and I strolled through and then that was that. Was that. Yeah, so I, sorry, you're right about it being slow, but 
but it was not a chore. You know, the the flow was very natural. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's all right. Just just thinking about it uh, after watching it twice, I I definitely feel like when I go back to this film, it's going to be on a scene by scene basis. It's Monica is just such a powerhouse. I don't I don't understand. People talked about James Dean being an actor that was unpredictable and made choices that no other actor made. I think the man watched her because she starts in one place in a room and she's tap danced over the whole thing to not a note of music. And it's, it's frantic and it's uh, instinctual and it, it it's flighty and, and claustrophobic. And there's so much going on in the motion of how she carries herself. It, it's, and that is what's so compelling about, I mean, there's these great shots um, of kind of the, the wastes, the industrial landscapes and the framing. I think Antonioni does a great job of that kind of scene division thing we talked about with drive. There's really hard angles and kind of things that frame and encapsulate and, and kind of create this constructed um, um, claustrophobia in sequences but it, it, I think that's the thing. It's like it takes a lot of RAM for me to watch this. Like it's like I have to absorb every. I can't have anything else going on, and it's exhausting for me. I think watching Monica, Juliana's character is is so there's so much motion. It's so unpredictable. It keeps hitting you in weird places that it's 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 exhausting for me to watch. So I just just something that I've been thinking about coming back to it the second time because this is only the second time I'd seen it is that when I revisit it, it will be more of, okay, let's watch this specific sequence. We'll watch this specific scene where Juliana is having these reactions. Um, Your body language is so distinct from everybody else in the entire film. Yeah. You know, obviously on purpose, but it, it just stands out so vividly. It, she could have been an alien, right? She stands out more than Scarlett Johansson did, right? In, uh, <laughs> in Under the Skin, you know, she... <laughs> She stands out as much as, as I don't know, like Alf, basically. <laughs> but she does it entirely through her own body motion. It's a That's new headcanon. <laughs> Monica Vita is Alf. Yeah, she died in the car crash, and Alf was the third. <laughs> that was how he invaded Earth. So what about favorite scenes? Let's get these out of the way. Tim, rack your brain. <laughs> no. Um. Oh, and actually, I thought of something else I wanted to mention, too. Um, I don't know if this happened when you guys were trying to watch it, but, like, the subtitles at one point got all fucked up, and they were they were playing, like, two minutes before they were being said. Oh, shit. And it really, no, like, I and I even tried, like, problem. signing out of Canopy, signing back in, like, refreshing the page. And so, like, halfway through the movie, I had to, like, read what was being said and try to memorize it so you that when becoming they started Julia. talking again oh, you're <laughs> experiencing her separation yeah, from reality funny. yeah you went real so, method <laughs> yeah so so and that's part and i you know I, I i think i've gone on record before saying i don't like movies with subtitles and and like don't get me wrong like i get it when it's like okay the you know sometimes the the wording that they use for the dubbing is different and it's not as impactful. Um, but it's just, you know, it, it, it pulls me out of the film, you know, more so than kind of watching their lips and seeing it not match. So I wonder if I would have had a different experience with this, if I had, if there was a dubbed version, 
or even if the sub- subtitles lined up the way they were right. supposed to. <laughs> so, um, so that was, yeah, that was a disclaimer I wanted to put that I forgot to mention earlier. Um, I think my favorite scene was maybe the one in the little, the little shack. Um, just because like number one, I didn't have to really be as aware of what they were talking about. Cause it's like, I kind of knew, you know, like, yeah, the, the sexual tension aspect of it and like, you know, like kind of just like, Oh, like what's, what's in this room? Kind of like one by one people wandering in there, climbing on this big bed. And, you know, the more people are in there, the closer everybody is and the more everybody's touching each other. Um, and then how, you know, there was this kind of like playful thing. And it, it almost seemed like that was the most comfortable she had been in the whole film. Um, and I think, I think I really enjoyed that, like kind of seeing her kind of get a break where it, I, I don't know if part of it was that like, you know, everyone else who was supposed to be, you know, so it seemed like everyone was kind of like loosening up in there and it's just like, Oh, like, okay, are these couples going to swing? Like what's going to happen? And, you know, and I, and that was the thing too, is I didn't quite get who I remember at one point, again, the subtitle, some, someone said something about someone's husband. Right. But by the time they actually said it, I didn't know who was saying it to whom about their husband. So I don't I don't know who in that scene, aside from, you know, the main characters who I knew were married and then the, the friend who was, you know, in love with her, like of the, the two other women, that one other guy, I didn't know who was married. Um, so real quick, the, the woman in the green dress with the red hair, mm-hmm. she says that about the woman with the dark hair. It's her husband. Okay. So that kind of skeezy guy yeah. is her husband, and he's coming on to the redhead. Yeah. I wrote um, these and so it, Yeah. Well, and that's what was funny, too, like how, you know, she says that later, but it's just like, but he was like sticking his hand up your dress in front of his wife, and everyone was just kind of cool with it. So it was, a, yeah, it was a really weird vibe, and it was like, you know, maybe that was sort of the thing, like in that room, in that vibe. Like, everyone was kind of like, okay, sure, whatever. But then once they were out of the room, it's like, I don't like your husband. It's like, oh, well, maybe if you, you know, if you had said something earlier, she probably, I'm sure she would have been like, hey, that's not cool that you're sticking your hand up. She says, like, I don't like your husband, but he's going to have his way with me. Like, uh, you hate him, but you're going to sleep with him? (laughs) Like, let him sleep with you? Okay. Is that Yeah, and it was was interesting, too, that, yeah, I feel like... uh, that conversation happens once they leave the room. So it was kind of like once they're in that, that bed room, like kind of all bets were off. We're kind of like, you know, oh, let's, let's see what happens in here. Um, yeah. And, and, and she seemed the Juliana seemed the most comfortable there, which was kind of nice to kind of see her get this break where it's like, everyone's kind of being out of character here. Like both a bunch, you know, all a bunch of grown ass adults and, you know, like it's not, this isn't college. This isn't, you know, theater class where it's like oh we're gonna go fuck on the theater couch after school because that's what you do <laughs> that's what it's there for it, you know it's it, it, like these are the same couch in every like, high school across america yeah, yeah exactly um into, so it's just kind of object needed. number 19 <laughs> the <theater> couch. <laughs> yeah that one's in the the warehouse with the ark of the covenant <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. yeah even though it's in the warehouse it's still in the theater yep. high school yep, yep. everywhere <laughs> So yeah, so I, I I did like that scene. I like the, the yeah the whole vibe of it just seemed to stand out from the rest of the film. Where, and I'm yeah I'm sure that was part of the point. It was also kind of interesting too. Kind of I was I was trying to track like 
okay, I know this is called Red Desert, so there's got to be some significance to the color red and trying to follow that through. And I was like, well, is she the Red Desert? Like, is it these moments? So um, it was kind of interesting seeing. I feel like that was maybe the most red we got all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also, to me, kind of made it feel like sort of a, a, a climax, so to speak, of the film. <laughs> and it wasn't the actual climax, <laughs> you know, but... But, you know, the fact that it was or, or some sort of point of arrival, you know. Um, yeah, so I think that one, I, I, I really liked it. it. It felt, yeah, I think it was I, I, it was interesting. I, I, and, you know, I guess that's what I, I, I'm, I'm trying to tell myself is that because everyone else was kind of acting out of the ordinary, maybe that's what made her feel comfortable because she didn't feel like everyone else was being normal and she was the only one being abnormal seemed like everyone in that like grown-ass adults don't all climb onto the same mattress and just hang out like touching and rubbing each other you know normally i mean it does happen but um so like i think it 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 must have been like they were kind of coming to her level to her where it's like oh yeah kind of anything goes in this situation i don't have to worry about how i'm acting or how i'm feeling and trying to act in a certain way I can just, you know, eat the quail egg, which again, I still don't really get the significance of why that was a big deal. But the fact that she did it and everyone was kind of like, oh, instead of like, you're not supposed to be doing that. You know, I think I think that added to her sense of freedom in that moment. And, you know, she got to just kind of live, live as she lives without having to be concerned with how she was being perceived by others. And, and, you know, like I said, trying to act normal in those situations. I call that scene the aborted orgy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that, that whole, like, is this, is this going to happen? Is that, is everyone, cause I'm cool What's with funny this. Is they cool all, t- this. Is this, they all take cool a nap this? and that's what Shane, like <laughs> they take a nap and wake up from the nap and nothing's happened. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was the thing too. Like I, I forget like how we got out. I remember the boat showing up and it was kind of like, Oh, everyone's cold. Yeah. It's a good scene. I like that scene a lot. It's sort of the centerpiece of the film. In a lot of ways, visually, there's all that color from the red walls and the different outfits, and there's a lot more going on inter-character-wise, you know, in that one scene. It's the most people and not machinery. It's like the least industrial location mm. in the film, and it, it's there. It's the most claustrophobic space with the most people crammed in, and it's the most that happens. It, it really does feel like instead of a climax towards the the end of the second act beginning of the third act it's definitely like more shakespearean like climax is in the dead center of this film because it feels like that should be the end like it's kind of this cumulative moment what about you zeke what was your favorite scene yeah i don't know if this one's too easy of one but uh visually the fog scene um that's just so memorable and the the way the characters are spaced out i really liked and the way you lose and gain people as she moves through the fog. Um, you know, I, I think probably, probably one of the scenes, I don't, and I, Joel, you can fill me in if this is kind of his style, but I feel like from this movie, it seems representative of, of a scene of why he would be regarded as such a visual um, director. So I like that one a lot. And then, um, Tim, when you were mentioning the subtitle thing, I thought you were going to, mentioned the scene at the end where she's talking to the sailor, um, which I think is another favorite for me, realizing that uh, because I was watching and when he spoke, there were no subtitles. And I was like, what the heck did, did my subtitles go out or do I need to rewind? 
And it was just that disconnect, right? She didn't understand his language. So what he was saying, you know, wasn't um, an important piece and kind of just reflecting how isolated she felt and how lonely she felt. Um, so once that clicked for me, I think that exchange was another favorite. I really liked the subtitle trick with the sailor because I, I feel like that was almost more meaningful subtitle than it would have been in Italian. Because in Italian, she would have just spoken to him in a perfectly normal sentence, and then he would have just spoken back to her in something incomprehensible. But right. I don't really know any Italian, mm-hmm. you know, a couple words here and there. So it was just as incomprehensible to me as whenever that sailor was speaking. So the subtitles translating for her and not for him was such a distinctive and, you know, it gave intent, right, to the the exchange. Right. It gave a certain weight to it. Yeah. And like I said, when I first thought that it was, I don't know, because I, I just didn't register. And I was like, oh, is he speaking Italian too? And they just didn't subtitle his for whatever reason, or did they shut off or whatever? So I was like trying to listen to the next line to see, like, can I pick up? And I don't know any Italian either, really. So I was like, well, maybe I can pick up a word or two. Um, could not, because again, yeah. Like you said, that wasn't, and then, yeah, just a very good trick there. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's distorted at all, because I, I mean, I took one year of Italian, and I'm garbage at it. I have no no retention. I remember more of French from middle, middle school than I do from Italian in college. So, but, like, it, it definitely felt like a different language. So I don't know if in Italian it's kind of this garble, like, the delivery as well. I wonder if it it comes across the same way. But, yeah, that... I don't know that I really connected that before that that's just kind of the final piece in her dissociation that, that everything's become the purple mast looming purple mast that we get that little, that unfocused view of that's the terrifying thing in the corner that she's looking at. And I don't know that I put together that when she's on the dock and she's going up that rickety to that scary boat, she, nothing is in focus. She has no idea what's, around her anymore and it, it it makes it all the more terrifying i mean she kind of navigates this this maze of pipes and and the the dock and she arrives at this place and it's very vulnerable and she's at her most vulnerable and it's really kind of sinister the way this kind of alien sailor speaks this language and is talking to her and seems to keep like pursuing her too so it's like th- this this dissociation is now made made her completely vulnerable and and in danger and i think that's part of the tension of that scene is i feel the danger in that and it's and she has a really really earnest really honest conversation about what she's feeling and how she's disassociating and and understanding that i it's earlier that she says i'm not not going to get better i can't get better and that was a moment where she was kind of like everything's the purple void right now and it's terrifying (laughs) and I don't. I can't make a decision. I don't know what's safe. I don't know what anything is anymore. It, it, yeah, that's such a powerful sequence. The other part of it I liked, um, as you were talking, I remembered that just the the way it's shot too. And I almost want to call it a monologue. That last little um, almost speech that she gives him, right? Like it's it's framed where it's just her, but it's distant and close at the same time. And then you kind of back out and see that he's still there. And for a while, it feels like it's just her talking to the void or to space or to no one in particular, but it's still him. Um, and I think the camera worked to like start up close in on them. And then she, when she gets to that speech, kind of just to focus just on her a little bit backed up. Uh, I just really liked how that was shot too. What about you, Scott? Or was the ending yours? 
No, I mean, I, I liked that scene. I liked the fog that you mentioned, Zeke. That was a moment I replayed on purpose. But the favorite scene is actually the shop. When uh, Interesting. The main character goes to see her in her empty store that, you know, the husband clearly thinks is never going to actually happen, right? And that we start to see is maybe really never going to actually happen in this empty shop in what is an otherwise maybe or maybe not deserted street. We can't tell. Um in what is presumably just the middle of this otherwise typical at cozy town. And I just, I loved it. I loved the buildings and the way they were shot. I loved the way they were present in this clearly alive place that was nonetheless largely deserted. Uh, I loved the whole thing with the, the, the state of disrepair of the shop, the paint on the walls and everything. I loved that conversation as an excellent introduction that sets the tone for their whole relationship and the whole way the film is going to work. Uh, and then there was one particular shot right towards the end in the street that reminded me vividly of all of the cinematography in Le Conformist, which is another Italian film, which is an absolute landmark in cinematography in general. Um, it actually came after this. So, you know, certainly this was one shot was just something that came from Antonioni, right? And I, I almost feel like The Conformist is if you saw that shot instead of making a whole movie, it looks like that. But, um, <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't what happened, but I just, that's such a, I love the cinematography in The Conformist very much, just as a matter of personal taste. So the fact that this scene that I was already so 100% on board with, like, capped it with that, with, like, the cherry on top. I just loved it. What about you, Joel? Were there any changes from first to second viewing in your favorite scene? No, I mean, I had the greatest hits in my head as I went in, and I even kind of wrote out before I, I sat down to watch it, kind of the things that I was remembering and the things that, like, I didn't want to spend the whole time writing. I did end up spending the whole time writing as I was watching it, which is difficult with this film because so much is happening. Even though it's slow and it's quiet, like there's a lot going on on screen, like not story-wise, not ver like line-wise, but in terms of like motion within the frame. Um, so, I mean, anything, any sequence where we see Monica Vitti acting, I mean, that, that that's all on a tie in, in a class of its own. I really enjoy the smoke scene early on. We get these kind of different, we, the movie starts with the lighting of a fire and there's kind of a, a dead fire in the furnace in the red room at the end. Cause there's this kind of smog and smoke and flame and, and burning out. That is this imagery that kind of prevails through the film. So I really enjoyed kind of the loud cacophony of the, the, um, the, the factories and when they're calling to see if they can get a team together to do stuff, like there's this all this noise and they're just yelling over it. They're not even trying to, to be uh, avoided. They're just like they've accepted it. They're kind of within this thing. So the idea that he's taking his buddy Zeller around, Ugo, Ugo is the, uh, the um, Juliana's husband, is kind of showing him around and also the big, so like, and he's like, yeah, his face, he has such a distinct mouth. It, it, it's very interesting face. Like I, I love Italian actors. Like they, there's, I don't know. There's something about yeah. Italian actors from the '60s in like a black suit and black and white. Like it, it's a very specific aesthetic and a very kind of road worn, weary face. And, and he and Richard Harris are like the two most handsome people in the film. <laughs> but like again, it feels on purpose, you know, as the two objects of Julia's attention. I feel like they gave Julia a starchy wig to to dress her down a little bit. There's some problems with that wig throughout the film. 
It's just it just feels like the driest, most awful headpiece I've ever seen. Even when it moves, it has this kind of like this was spray <laughs> hair sprayed down to like death. Um, that's not a favorite part, but yeah, I really like the smoke scene because he's kind of showing Zeller around, and they stop and watch this massive plume of smoke come out, and then at the end we end with this yellow smoke. That that really kind of morbid moment with the son, who's a fucking asshole, and we'll get to that. But that the if a little birdie flies in there, he'll die. Well, the birdies have learned by now, so it's it's kind of this sad acceptance at the end of like the the mechanized world and the pollution is just part of the equation now. It's not something to be avoid. It's not something we're not aware of. It's just something we have to deal with, which I think is really fascinating. Um, yeah, Red Room aborted orgy I have written here. The drive on the dock. So so the this, the fog on the dock is is gorgeous. It, it's haunting. It's amazing. It's such a beautiful sequence. And then she drives the car through the smog nearly to the I mean, we don't see the whole drive. But, like, the terror I have and, and the, her reaction yeah. afterwards is like, I'm not sick. Don't send me back. I I made a mistake. I was I was I like the fear in her performance as a result of that makes that so much more dramatic. Even though we didn't see her come to the edge, we see the end result of that kind of mad dash into the smog, and I, it, there's just so much tension. And that that performance is just she's literally watching people disappear into the fog in, in a, and, a literal she... representation of what she's been feeling out of focus and disassociated before. So and it's happening. She drives right? her. The yep. only thing she can do about it. She finds herself on a precipice. Yep. Again, it's the second time. And it looks like she's attempted suicide again. And it, it, it's, it's a terrifying moment. And I think that it's just really fascinating. I don't know how that like that looks real. I don't know how you fake fog like that. It, it just is really, really compelling. I really like there's a lot of quiet moments within the red room um, between her and uh, Zeller. There's when they're finally out of the room. Uh, Juliana's leaving the room and she lays her head against the door frame and uh, Zeller's hand is there and they get this brief moment of touch and it's fleeting and then it's gone. And it, like there's there's these quiet moments like that. And then the, here's another moment I really like and I, I can wrap it up because i i love most of most of this film but i i really enjoyed when they started the fire and there's a cry in the distance like the the boat has shown up the big ship and there was a cry and when i watched it the first time i was like is that editing is that did it come from inside my house or outside my house i didn't register it because they didn't react to it and then five minutes later they reference it and they use it like, was it imagined? And Juliana tries to to reinforce someone else's reality in that moment and is, encounters all these barriers to it. I just thought it was such a fascinating moment that watching it, I'm like, I, I, I dismissed it because, oh, they didn't react to it. So why would I react to it? It didn't really happen. So there's these constructed realities that are becoming plain even to someone who is not disassociated because the, the wife, the uh, yeah, the, the other wife, I need to know these names. So there's Millie who I think is, is the redhead. Um, so Max and Linda, no, Max and Linda. And, and then I 
I O L L E is the the young fisherman who's buying it. That's the girl he's with. And then, so yeah, Max and yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, she she's been reading, and she says, "Oh, I thought I heard that." There's, oh no, it was in your book. You might have imagined it. And Juliana's like, "No, no, I heard it too. I didn't react because nobody else reacted." And also secretly, she's saying, well, I, I haven't been a reliable narrator this whole time to myself, so I didn't know if it was real either. So she she leaps at the chance to reinforce somebody else's reality, which is really important. That That's really important to her character to be that to, to be a support, a strut, a, 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 something that's holding up reality for somebody else is a big deal for her. Um, so I, I love that moment. It's almost a non moment. And it, I, I love that it comes back and they deal with it because in the moment, like I, I, I heard it as like, oh, since there's no reaction on screen, it didn't happen. I think that's kind of the point of that moment. It's interesting, Tim, you talked about it being subtle. I don't think like this movie doesn't feel very subtle to me. It's like, hey, look at how the environment's dying. Hey, like here's this big red room of sex. And I think like the reason they, they break down the fire, at least this is my my thinking. Like, they start breaking down that wall. I think that's representative of, like, Zeller's frustration that there's this wall between him and Juliana. Not just of the marriage, but of her psyche. And there's this distance between them. And they were just in the orgy room, and they didn't orgy. So he's like, well, I'm breaking the fucking walls down because I can affect this part of reality rather than... I, I, I don't know if that's just me projecting, but that's how I felt. It's like, dude's horny and just breaking shit. Like... <laughs> I like that you used orgy as a verb. I've never heard that before. <laughs> they, they didn't, didn't orgy. orgy. Hey, everybody, let's orgy. It's like that uh, um, uh, Party Down episode. So that's why I shut party. It's an orgy. You didn't read the invite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could, there's a million things to talk about, but I, I just really enjoyed the camera work in this. It's similar to Stalker that, like, the way he reveals things in the frame is very interesting like there's one it's it pans over the top of a car and richard harris steps up into frame and then it zooms out like it just it approaches framing from new angles and it's always surprising kind of the way it moves from place to place and it'll rapidly just this brilliant set of doubles where the two people talking to each other are always in frame but the characters never move and instead, the camera just goes from place to place and frame to frame. That was genius. And I love that oh in, when gosh. when the the guy who's bought the shack shows up with his girlfriend. Yeah, well, the way they're well, revealed. One of them apparently. Well, yeah, one of many. <laughs> the man's a stallion. <laughs> He's a stallion. Um, but like they they pan through the doorway to that red room, and that's how they become revealed. And the focus is great. Like this, no, in no other film is focus so important because it's so deliberately unfocused and super focused at different. There's, I mean, that I think that adds so much to the alienation that you feel from Julia is that she's in focus and everything else isn't. Even when it's just the back of her head and she's walking away, she's what's in focus. Everything else is incidental, and I, I just think that's so powerful. This was Antonioni's first film in color which I thought was really interesting because he starts from this kind of blurry out of focus title sequence. And that's the thing, your first foray into color, it's like you have everything at your disposal, literally the easels before you. And Antonio decides, no, we're going to make something about alienation. 
We're going to use this muted set. landscape. Right. These muted colors. Fog. Right. And so, but when the color's there, like that green coat that she wears at the very beginning, she stands the fuck out. And I think it's just, and he was, I mean, the Italian film tradition at this point was very much serious film. Drama was done in black and white. It's just what was done. It was the kind of historical, like the tradition of film was to do that. So there's a lot of kind of nervousness or just kind of like dismissal of because comedies were in color. Like they were bright and shiny. Action feels bright, shiny, dumb. Like here's your like here's the spectacle to kind of get your attention. So to do they, they just the medium was such an interesting change. So he he would he had people physically painting sets. Like they had that transition after the sex sequence. I'm putting that in quotation because it, it's it's so unco- it's as uncomfortable as every other kind of uh, every per- other performance of Monica in the film. And it, it's like how do you seduce someone who's retreating and coming back and re- like that I, I mean it's tied up in in the film of the period and the sensibility of the period about romance and and sex it's all of that thing but it's also an extension of the performance monica's giving so uh, it, it's it is rapey i will not say that it's not a rapey scene i it, it, it and if it, it triggers you it's uncomfortable i i would not recommend what do you mean, Joel? everyone knows that in the middle of a mental crisis is when women are horniest <laughs> right and that's the thing like she is actually bearing the specific specific nature of her neuroses he's like i need to fuck you now it's like <laughs> fuck zeller that's that's just so but like after that sequence the whole room becomes pastel pink and that's physically painted like they painted the room the room shifts in color because at one moment it's vibrant, now it's just muted in the background. It's just, I, I, he tells so much of a story with color, and he's very deliberate. I, I just love that for somebody whose canvas was only black and white, the way he decided to use color I thought was fascinating and really compelling and, and strange and to put things in focus and out of focus. Like, I, I just, I, I thought that was just so innovative and something that you don't see now, right? Like, we... I, we've talked about it in the past, like there's a veneer, so like the the Netflix filter, or like the 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 lens flares, or everything's in shadow. Like the '60s and the '70s with color was just like, bam, out there. Like like it, it was strongly characterized and used as another color in the palette, rather than, well, it's in color, we can put it in. Sh- I don't know. Like I, I, it it's just been a nice change for these old films to have such a. a attention to the detail of the story of color compared to now where it seems like it's weird if superman's in his right tights in a movie now like that blue yellow and red like that seems weird in Zack snyder's film right like but that that's that's not how chris reeve looked chris reeve was like as bright and shine i I don't know like so it's just been an interesting contrast to kind of the veneer of things recently um that's not really a discussion topic. I just word vomited at you guys. Was there, I, I, I really think Monica Vitti is just incredible. I, I can't speak more. How, how did you guys feel about performances in these, the, the different characters? Well, yeah, I mean, of, of course, like that was, you know, the, the reason to watch it, you know, and, and, and in the end, it's, it's, it's undeniable. Um, yeah, I think, it's just yeah, like uh, everything, like everything she did was so so frantic. Like I feel like yeah, like she was, there was always this sense of 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 motion, 
you know, um, yeah, like anxiety. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. Yeah. There's no, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to argue against that be like, Oh, I think she was shit. You know, <laughs> there's a great moment in, in the shop where she asks Zeller a question and then just fucking leaves. Like, doesn't even wait for an answer. She leaves. And I mm-hmm. love the moment where that comes back when he leaves for good and he's in the doorway. He turns back expecting her to have followed. There's so much of what she's got is catching and Richard Harris character caught it. Like another favorite scene I was just remembering is when he's planning the, the excursion, right? Like the, the, the new project in South America with the boats and he's telling everybody like, no, you'll get paid when we get there. You can send for your wives and lying through his teeth to these laborers. And then they start to go out of focus and he realizes that what Juliana had is catching and he's got it like, and that impacts how he interacts with her. And then I I really believe when he turns to look at that doorway, when he is going to leave, it's because he thought she would follow him. And it's just like, I love that. What, what a choice. Like, I, I, I want to know how that was directed or or written. I love that moment with the workers because it, it is such a, like, you can't imagine he ever had a connection to the workers. He's sending them, not in this particular scenario, he's sending them off to the middle of the, of nowhere in South America. You know, God knows if he's telling the truth about the amenities or the, the Italian newspaper that will be available or et cetera. Because he just he's a businessman. This is what he does, true or not. He sells the sells the deal, but that's that. You know, he, like you said, he realizes that it's catching and that he's caught it. I think it's more that he realizes that it's been happening to him his whole life, and he's just hasn't noticed it. And now we can see. I was going to say, as great as uh, she is, I think um, Zeller and Ugo play their roles well too, and, and just all complement each other. I think. Ugo plays that kind of, you know, first uh, glance even kind of sleazy, distrustworthy um, kind of character. And Zeller uh, seems affectionate at first or seems, I don't know, his motivations seem different. He changes throughout the movie. Um, I, I, yeah, I think those main three were all played extraordinarily well and play off of each other really well. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys thought of the um, pink beach sand story and then we, we need to talk about the kid because the kid pisses me off more oh. more than the kid in unbreakable like i hate what this a kid little more. like <laughs> but yeah that story is very interesting I, yeah, I definitely like that scene because yeah visually and texturally it was it was such a nice break from everything we've been seeing but but yeah i was kind of like why i mean as much as i as much as i liked it I didn't see like what it was. And I remember watching it too. And it, it reminded me there's a, um, there's a film I watched a while ago. Cause I, um, I think I, I was at the library and I did a search to see if like, cause I think I heard that, uh, Christoph Penderecki had actually scored a film and I was like, Ooh, I want to watch that film. And it, it was like three hours long. And partway through, I realized that it was this like, um, these layers like with an inception of stories within stories, like someone was telling someone a story and you would get so lost in that story that you wouldn't realize that one of the characters within that story starts telling a story 
and then you fall into that story. And then one character in there starts telling a story and, and then they start pulling you out and you're like, holy shit. Like, but it, yeah, it wasn't like inception where you're obvious. Okay. We're going down another layer. So this is moving slower. Um, and I was like, Oh, is this going to be like that where she's telling a story and we're going to kind of live in this world for a while. And there's going to be a whole thing happening within here that, um, and, and then it was done. I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you almost had me, and you lost me. <laughs> I have to say, like, I I love Italian endings because it's just been. It always makes me laugh because it's been lampooned to the nth degree, and it's always like, well, what the fuck was that as an ending? Like, what, <laughs> yeah. what, what? So it, when when watching, ran out of film, and it's lunchtime. Let's do it. We're done. Yeah. When yeah. when watching that sequence, I really thought that I that should be the ending. Is is it's just as arbitrary as the true ending. Like, I mean, there there's plenty of quality stuff left, but I, it's just as weird and just as strange as this distraction, and it's an escape. I don't know if it's my pastoral brain just loving this kind of return to nature in this this like from an industrial landscape for renewal. And I think her telling that story has this effect of like it's it's kind of hopeful, it's kind of sinister, and it's like she's kind of feeling this cacophony and it's this, this escape for her. She's kind of exploring that story as a, uh, there's this sanctum and the sailing ship kind of violates that sanctum and the voice penetrates the sanctum. What was once quiet is now filled with this music. It's the only musical cue in the whole film. It runs over the credits is that same song. And then it goes for a long, long time in that sequence, that song. And the girl it, on the beach didn't realize how alone she was. Yeah. Until yeah, until the boat and the, and the voices. Yeah, it, it's, it's just a really unwelcome realization. Yeah, and the the idea that kind of the rocks are like flesh, and it, I think that also has to do with dissociation. Is that like it's the reason it's all blurring might be that it's all one thing, and that's terrifying <laughs> for her. It might be. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's an interesting detraction. And it, it is refreshing in a certain sense. As weird as it is, it, it feels like kind of this oasis in a way. It also, wasn't she? She was telling that story to her kid, right? Uh-huh. But I also feel like it's weird too, and maybe maybe that was part of it too, where it's like, you know, she probably couldn't talk to other adults about it. You know, maybe her husband's kind of like, okay, you have this condition, and you know, is trying to maybe deal with it as best he can, or other people like, you know. But like with her son, you know, maybe through through that story, it was like, okay, I can I can finally try to relate to someone about this, you know, or you know, find a way. You know, it's not like she could tell, you know, that story to her husband, you know. But because it's her child, it's like, oh, I can tell you this little fairy tale about this fictional little girl or whatever, and and that'll make sense to you. And, you know, yeah, again, yeah, the, the the power of metaphor, you know, to be able to you know, describe what you're, you're feeling, not through the, the literal words, but through a story and, and kind of feel, feel seen and understood, you know, because you can kind of relate it, uh, I guess, in, in, in a way that, that, that the kid could understand, you know, I just yeah, realized, I think I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, just, yeah. I, I like the whole thing. I think with the rocks, like flesh too, cause it's like, you're getting these two, two different, ways of breaking from the sort of the metal the harsh cold metal and the or the you know in the, in the little shack the wood you know that we're kind of getting it's like you know there's 
there's these sort of natural, more natural rock formations, you know, nothing man-made about it, but also just like, yeah, like, like, like skin, just being human, you know? And, and I think that's also, and, you know, that and, and the, and the clean water, <laughs> I feel like, you know, is what makes it a perfect contrast to like everything we've seen in the rest of the film, you know? I was going to say, uh, well, one, right off the bat, I liked in the opening credits that they thanked the person who let them use the, the pink beach. Yeah. So I like, saw that going in. I was like, oh, that's funny. Is that the setting for the whole movie or whatever? And then it's just that snippet at the end. So I thought that was uh, very nice. Um, but yeah, I'll try not to tangent too much, but a weird coincidence. I'm reading a book right now called Beautiful Ruins that's set in 1960s Italy. Um, and it's on like a little seaside kind of cliffy town. Um, so just, yeah. Good timing to be reading that and watching this. But one thing I like about the book is that, um, so part of it's set in 1962 Italy. Um, part of it is set in present time. And in the present time, um, there's a filmmaker and then there's a guy trying to pitch a film to the filmmaker. And there's an older Italian man um, who had interacted with the filmmaker back in the 60s. And it kind of goes back and forth between those time periods. But then there's also... Um, the Italian owns a hotel and in the hotel, an author was there and wrote a story. So sometimes the book breaks and goes into the story that that author wrote. And then um, there was another chapter where it broke into the story that the guy pitching the movie, it's it goes into a chapter that's just his screenplay essentially, or his movie. Um, Big tangent, all that to say that I kind of liked the story at the end, um, just because it felt like such a departure from the rest of the movie in a good way. Right. And it's more palatable than if the mom just sat down and the shots, just her and the son in the bed. And she's just telling him the story, right. Getting to visually see it. The colors are different. The shots are different. Um, a new character is introduced. Um, just felt like a departure and, and to tie it back to the book, just felt like, Oh, this is the chapter that's talking about this. That just felt separate enough. Um, but still intertwined. So I liked it a lot. And I think that that story comes, I just realized that she, this is when the the son has lied to her about not being able to walk. So he, he's kind of demanding her to, to play court jester at this point. Tell me a story, draw me a picture. And I didn't realize before that the picture she starts drawing is purple with this green streak between it. And that's kind of, the purple mass that we gets referenced later um, must be, I think is a callback to that. I think she's drawing what she can see at that point. Um, and I think it's interesting that she kind of bears her soul with that story. And then she discovers that he's been lying to her and feels completely alienated, rejected. It's such a cruel thing to do as a child. And that kid, there's something about that kid He's like the omen kid. Like, he has that same look. He wears a, a blazer too too well designed for his body to be not evil, to be good inside. Like, I don't know. It's just like, it's such a cruel thing that he does. And he, the way he's, he plays, he's just only demanding. He's, he's never, there's no tenderness to him, really, until the end, I guess. Um, I, I guess. Um, but that... It's just so hard to watch that she's like, this is my child. If if anybody, I should be at least have some tie here, some tether. And that totally severs it, is that realization that 
And he, he sees it in his look. You can see it in his little face, the little shit. He sees that he got caught. He doesn't know what to do. He just stops moving. And she leaves. And that's when she goes to Zeller's apartment. And it's so interesting that when she gets to Zeller's apartment, she doesn't remember his name. I thought that was really an interesting point, too, is that she it's like this feeling. She's, she's drawn to this person but doesn't know anything about them. And it, it, it comes on the heels of this story and this kind of last ditch after because she she's tried to explain through story to Zeller about herself. And she's gotten through to a certain extent when she talks about. He knows about the accident before he tells she tells her him he he kind of devises that her friend in the hospital was her talking about taking her own life and like he she's tried to connect with him and she, she's also trying to connect with her son through the story. And she, at first she doesn't want to tell the story. She's like, no, I'll tell it to you later. It's, I think it's very personal to her to share that. And it's a complete rejection. And that's what sends her over to Zeller. And I think she gets some clarity from that, that interaction, it, rape, seduction, awful, awkward, terrifying scene. Like um, it, 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 it's all of those things. And I think afterwards, she's like, you can't help me either. I'm not going to get better. I thought you could help. And he's, like, really hurt by that. And it's really interesting to see this kind of reversal because he's kind of flighting from thing to thing to thing. I'm not taking anything with me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so now he's he's attached, and she's like, you didn't help me. It's like, well, you're supposed to help me. And he gets all butthurt and leaves. It's just, an inch, like, that dynamic is so interesting and how that story kind of acts. I mean, she's told stories before in the movie. And we haven't seen them play out in the same way as the the Pink Sand Beach one. But I just thought that was an interesting kind of return to story as trying to trying to relate to somebody outside herself and the reaction from the rejection or, or perceived rejection. I mean, it's he's also a little kid. Like ten year olds are shitheads anyway. Like they'll do stuff like yeah. that. I don't know that he meant it as as maliciously as it was portrayed in the film or like a, a child would. But like you're grasping for reality. You thought the the one person who would be kind would be your kid and it, it's just she plays every beat of that that progression i just think it's masterful well i think one of the one of the things that that too and this ties into one of the things i mentioned earlier where she's eating the sandwich and where the fuck is her kid yeah like and i think it's kind of like what's what's that movie is it riding cars with boys where drew barrymore her character's talking to her son and he's talking about how, how like they're a team or they're partners. And he's like, no, you're the mom. I'm the kid. And it's like, I, I almost feel like there's that, that kind of thing here where she's relying on the kid from something. It's like, no, like the kid's supposed to be relying on you. Sure, and I think yeah. the kid is probably doing a big, like, like how do I make my mom pay attention to me? Like she wanders off to eat a sandwich somewhere and leaves me with a bunch of random dudes so maybe if I pretend I can't walk, like she'll actually like focus on me instead of whatever's going on in her head, you know, and, and that is, such you know, so I, I want, yeah, I wonder if that's part of like, you know, and, and he's a kid, like he doesn't know better, but he, he either doesn't know that he has this responsibility that he's supposed to be her tether or like maybe, you know, the part of him, if there's a part of him that does realize that is like, no, like I, I'm not supposed to be taking care of my mom. She's supposed to be taking care of me, you know? And, um, you know, and that's kind of what I, what I saw that as is like, you know, and I don't know. And I, it almost makes me, yeah, it almost makes me feel like less bad for her when she kind of finds out and leaves. It's kind of like, you know, maybe you should have had the realization that like, oh shit, like I still have this kid that I'm supposed to be taking care of. Like, 
and it, it sucks that I don't know what's real and what's not real, but, but I still have this kid and, and, and she was taking care of him and focusing on him and, you know, being a good mom, you know, once it was like, Oh no, what's wrong with him. But it's almost like, you know, instead of having that realization that like, I, I should have been taking care of him all along. It's like, Oh, well, fuck you too. I'm going to go bang some dude, you know? And it was, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't I, I, Yeah. I almost wonder, like, I don't know if that was like, I feel like the husband was kind of a lot of the time, just kind of like, and, and again, maybe this is something lost in translation, but he seemed kind of understanding of her condition, but, you know, and kind of letting her just kind of be in it. But it wasn't like he was actively doing anything to, to help her. But maybe part of that was like, well, maybe the only thing I can do to help her is to kind of, you know, just let her go through it and, and accept it that, okay, this is how you are now. But yeah, it almost felt like she had this, she was expecting stuff from people like, Oh, you have to kind of help me work through this, you know? And, um, and one thing I, I noticed and I'm just, I'm not going to make a judgment about it because it could be potentially problematic, but when her husband kind of makes advances towards her, she's very vocal and like, it, it's definite that she doesn't want to have sex with him. But with Zeller, I, I almost feel like it was meant to be played. Like, does she not want him to do this or does she want right. him to do this? You know, I, I think that's and, clear in the performance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think that's part of what clinches it for me too, is that when she didn't, she was just like, no, no, like it was, it was, it was obvious. Whereas maybe with, with her, I was almost wondering that, like, is she thinking that this might be the thing to fix her and she doesn't want to cheat on her husband, but but maybe this will help for some reason. And, you know, like not wanting to just be like, okay, I'm going to make the first move and go after this guy. Um, so yeah. So combination I think, yeah, there's a combination of factors where she yeah. feels like she has no other option to, yeah. to help herself, but also still doesn't want this option, you know, doesn't, doesn't want that right. to happen yeah. or, or wishes there was something else or, yeah, like she's not really interested in Zeller and like being passionate about wanting to be with him. But it's like, yeah, if this can if this can, you know, jumpstart me or reboot me, maybe it'll help. But I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it because it might help. And... I think a lot of what Hugo is written and how he performs is meant to stand in for he's he's very cold and mechanical. He, I mean, what he describes, how he describes her trauma is the gears don't quite mesh anymore. I mean, he's literally talking about her like an automaton. And like, it seems like the way he relates to the world is like machines either work or they don't like that. That in something's not right with the gears. So I, I don't have as much empathy for him as a partner. Cause he's also like, he'll go away. And we see so many like husbands going away to do work for what they think is a short amount of time, it's going to be forever or a long, much longer, right? This kind of isolation thing. And the fact that he was in London, found out about the accident, didn't come home. Like, I, I think that really kind of drives the wedge really strongly. Like, no, this dude is not yeah. going to comfort me. It's he's not a support system. He's not going to help. And I love I, the implication that he could in his own conversation where he says, well, no, the doctor said there was no need. I love the idea that he spoke to the doctor and not to her. Uh -huh. Yeah. And the doctor said, well, no, medically, you know, she doesn't need someone to come help her, which is the doctor's job. 
right? He just said, yeah. And the husband went, okay, end of conversation. Right. <laughs> he didn't want to talk to her about it at all, about do you want me to come back for any reason? Well, it's the same thing like they called the foremans, right, like at the different plants. It's the same kind of phone call. It's like, hey, can you do this? No. Hey, can you do this? No. Hey, do I need to come there? No. Like uh, he's asked, like getting the same kind of responses from these like experts or these people doing work. That's a really interesting point. I think, Tim, what you said about the kid, though, I really liked that idea that it's like it's not his job to fix her. Obviously, trauma manifests itself in different ways and different things will help or not help. But to his credit, what the kid did focused her in a way that nothing else had. Her love and fear for her kid and the fact that she sees, oh, no, you're broken, too. I got to do everything I can to make sure you don't you're not feeling like me. I think like that's that's really telling and a really and I think that that characterizes it in a different way. I think I think there's a little bit of a little shit in him. And I think there's a little bit of that. Like I, it really does focus her. And that that realization is like, oh, shit, mom knows that I was faking. And now she's going to go back and be disassociating again. Not that he would think about it in those terms. But I think that's a really yeah. powerful argument. That's really interesting. I have so many notes about this movie. It's exhausting. Uh, I don't want to keep us too much longer. Um, Can we branch out a little bit? For sure. Don't mind. Um, I know we've talked about foreign cinema before, but I don't know if we've ever talked to country in particular. Do you, um, I guess mostly for Tim and Zeke, do either of you have any prior experience with Italian films at all? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, or not that, sorry, I shouldn't say not that I know of, like I don't know, but I, uh, not that I can think of or, um, or remember. Yeah. Not extensive yeah. for me either. I think, uh, I mean, this, <laughs> um, maybe there's been one or two others, but I don't know. I, I, and that's one thing I have appreciated is that like prior to this, I wouldn't have sought out a Russian movie or a, you know, Italian movie necessarily, or a movie made before, you know, 1970, I guess. Like, so yeah, definitely new experiences for me. Real quick on that note, just to, to reference the film one more time. Like there's a parallel scene to Fellini's eight and a half in this where Fellini in eight or the character, the main character who's been to stand in is Fellini is this director character in eight and a half. And they're building this massive like set for a rocket ship for this movie. That's never going to get made. And it's very interesting in parallel to the barn and the giant antenna to, to listen to the stars. I just thought, like, there's this big edifice, like this big sci-fi swoopy, like, uh, uh, um, neo-futurism design to this thing set against this, like, rural shack. I just love that shot, and I love seeing the guy kind of walk down through it. It's great. Like, just, just to reference Fellini, another Italian filmmaker of much renown and respect. I think the other the the other experiences I I mean I'm an Antonioni freak I've watched most like the most of his stuff I've seen some Fellini stuff I've seen a lot of Italian horror from the the age like those Giallo films that I really like um, nothing on on the subject matter that Scott is so intimately familiar. <laughs> I mean no Italian cinema is a bit of a gap really. Um, so just to recap I took a one one class just the one in Spain about. European cinema, and we actually never made it to the unit on Italian cinema because we ran out of time. So we did French, German, British, and Spanish, and then that was that. Um, we did talk a lot about Italian cinema. We didn't end up watching or examining it 
too thoroughly. And then in my course about Holocaust films, we watched a few, um, watched four or five Italian films, and then as a result, ended up discussing Italian cinema in general and where their cinematic memory of the war and the Holocaust fit in the broader scope of Italian cinema. Um, but even that was, you know, more adjacent to the main topic, right? So I, my, my time cinema experience is largely Holocaust and war films, almost entirely. I mean, I, I think my you most... No, you... Well, right, but I, you know, in general, I think my most, um, you know, most non-war Italian film is like Cinema Paradiso, which is, you know... I mean, I, I guess it's Italian, right? It's made by Italians. I think of it as more a sort of a more Western film. I don't know why. Maybe just it got popular here. Um, but we did talk a lot, like I said, about the struggle with national identity. Um, partially, of course, as you know, it was it was a fascist nation, right, on the one side of the war, and then the fascist government collapsed. And they formed a new government and switched sides. And there was there was pretty much a, a small civil war in the middle of World War II in Italy, right? That concluded with Mussolini being dragged into the street and hanged. Um, so even during the war, there was a lot about, like, wh what is it that we want as Italians? What are we and what's our national goal? And want it if it's getting us, uh, you know, torn in half between the West and Germany, right? Um so the films tend to struggle with that a lot. And I think we have a really great example here of that struggle just encapsulated on an individual and societal level. Um, not just for the war, but for post-war, for the divided state of Europe in the Cold War between the East and the West. And especially for Italy, being on the Mediterranean, there's always been this weird sort of subtly reachy arm where, you know, basically we're, Soviet and NATO interests clash in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, you know, I think it's really neat to see that struggle for identity reflected in a more, I don't know, more neutral way, I guess. Mm. More sort of just, it's great to see that same topic approached rather than as a, as the product of a single historical event, um, as, as a more general societal, more philosophical approach to the same topic. Right. You're just, such a goddamn professional. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's also an interesting, like, the, the industrial landscape that we're kind of left with after World War II with kind of this ramping up, right, of production and stuff. Like, mm -hmm. what, and that's another part of the nation is like industrialized Italy post war is a very different landscape, yeah. literal landscape mm -hmm. than it ever was before. And that totally ties in with what the national identity is. Like, what, mm -hmm. what is Italy now? We, we've got these giant factories pluming out these smoke. We've got mm -hmm. these abandoned silos. We've got these rundown landscape does not lend itself well to that sort of 20th century industrial remaking right. between the mountains and the valleys. You know, it, it, yeah, it's just it's a great, great way to look at the topic. And I, I'm sure there is must be, you know, other Italian films out there that don't deal with this topic at all, right, or are free of this baggage. And it would be really neat to see them, but. Um, but on the other hand, I actually really like this as another step in my journey on Italian cinema, if that makes sense, a, a logical progression. Yeah. I don't, it's interesting. The, 
we talked about Tim had brought up kind of the idea of the dystopia and the dystopian idea of the 1960s film language and what what it is now. I, I didn't experience as much of a disconnect with this. I, I'm fascinated by industrial shit. Like whenever I go to like one of the industrial districts over here with like the big warehouse, the silos and stuff that's working, stuff that's not, it fascinates me because it's like that's the shit that lasts a long time. When everything collapses, that's going to still stand there. And I, I, I kind of see a quieter dystopia, quieter apocalypse in, in, in certain sense. Like that's kind of what I, it's like <laughs> packs of wild dogs roaming the streets. Attack, like, like, <laughs> but I, for some reason, the, the, the world of stalker, the world of red desert has this kind of eerie, familiar dystopic feel to me. It's like, I don't, I'm not going to live to the matrix level. I'm going to live to this shit. Yeah. This you brought up Mad Max, Tim. Right. There's something about, especially the later films. I guess all of them except the original, right? But yeah, it feels <laughs> alien. And I think just far, like, I feel eventually, like, if we, if sure. we progress through the, the Antonionian idea of dystopia, it'll lead to Mad Max, right? Like, it's so far gone that the bones of the old society are basically invisible. Yeah. I don't know if that's just I, I didn't grow up in New England looking at that kind of sludge. All, I mean, <laughs> there's some nasty rivers in Denver, but they're not not that green sludge, nasty stuff, you know. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I was wondering how all the rest of you felt about like the dystopic imagery if it came through or it did not. <laughs> well, Zeke, why don't you uh, answer that first? Yeah, I don't. I mean. I don't know about how it came through during my first watch, but it was interesting to read up uh, as I tend to do after these things and just, um, you know, hear about Antonioni's thoughts about how people were perceiving it and, 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 you know, industrialism versus um, nature almost. And, and the point he was trying to make or not trying to make, right. And he wasn't trying to say, well, you know, industrialism is a bad thing, but that's what a lot of people are taking it as. Um, and Joel, I think your perspective, right, seems to match up with what he was saying, right? There is beauty in this industrial landscape and it's going to be there and it's sturdy and it's, it's part of the landscape too. And it's beautiful in its own ways. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, in first impressions, that's just not really, I guess, the part of the movie that I was focused in on or thinking the most about. So yeah, I don't know that I have much to offer about the dystopian part of things. What about you, Scott? Yeah, I don't know. If, if dystopian feels like a too strong a word, maybe. Again, I, there was something about it that felt real, I guess, and, and normal. Uh, and I think maybe, like, we do see this, some of these landscapes, the, the factories especially, you know, they're really nasty, but the the ship and the dockyard and the shack were just kind of there. You know, it was a dock that wasn't gross or broken it was just a, a pier or um you know a, a dockyard right and then the ship was just a ship and the shack was kind of run down and in disrepair but you also got the sense that they used this as a love nest escape anyway you know it wasn't their home right when we see inside the apartment uh when richard harris is making that call to like try to convince the wife to as the husband to work it's just a perfectly normal looking apartment you know um it looks modern it's such it seems like yeah. they're almost from two different time periods like the, yeah. the shack and this with the lights and the the 
the fixtures and the carpeting and stuff and the robot over sta- another not so subtle thing is the, the <laughs> yeah. glowing evil eyes the of the robot, of the robot looking it out at the kid yeah. <laughs> and then like the town is a little bit bland but it's not you know oppressively crushingly oppressive or anything really except for the explicit the bit with the river um and the two couples you know the, the five of them i should say and then the bit with the factory and the smoke you know there's not a lot of very specific like this is destroying our environment and even then it feels more like it's you know he doesn't say this should or shouldn't happen or can or can't or we have to find a way to fix you know he doesn't seem to be making future statements to me it instead seems to be a a sense of like a, a way to project her dissociation onto society at large you know i, I said before i think that the richard harris character I, I characterize him as realizing that he's always had what she's had, but never realized it, that there's always been a, a, an un, an uncrossable gap between him and other people. You know, this, this disconnect in consciousness and that he's only just keeping his eyes open to it. And I think the frame, the environmental framing is the same, that there's always been this, like all around us, we can see evidence of this sort of, of the gap, even if it's just in carelessness, right? And just no one's looking at this or seeing it or thinking about it or realizing it. And whether it's good or bad or preventable or not preventable or yada yada or have responsibility or don't, we've got to see it first, but no one notices. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm also kind of thinking like Juliana kind of starts to, I mean, she got in a car wreck, right? So I think there's a there's a, a recoiling from technology and industrialization kind of might be as a response to that, too. I think might, maybe what we read into as a commentary on industrialization might be through the lens of, well, we're in Juliana's head and the car fucked her up and un, un, unmoored her from reality. So this kind of natural recoil and feeling of claustrophobia within these piped in and, and, and these harsh angles and these strange configurations of, of pipe and girder and steel and just an interesting, it's something set against what she's experiencing within her, her self and what, what led to it as an additional part of that. And everywhere she looks now just reinforces what she's experienced, what she's right. realized. Yeah. And the landscape is not the pink sanded beach that she has this flight of fancy within to tell the story. It's it, the water we see is very, a very different water. The rolling fog is in direct contrast to this bright, sparkling, sunshiny day on the you beach. You can see for miles out to the ocean to where oh. the ship, or ship appears. Yeah. Fog obscures everything. You can see straight through that water. It's just like pane of glass. It's gorgeous. I'm trying to think if I had any last minute. Well, we we didn't really talk too much about the Italian film post-war stuff. Sorry, Scott, I think I diverted no, away from it. No, no, that's fine. That was a good time for it. Um, I did want to ask, what do you all think about the title, Red Desert? This is not this doesn't require <laughs> a long answer necessarily, but it, you know, if you've got one, don't make just... no fucking sense. <laughs> right? I, exactly. Right? There is no desert. The closest we get to a red desert is the deserted pink beach. Right. So, I mean, desert, I can see, especially in a sense of isolation and loneliness. But then where does the red come from? I, I don't know. I just, what do you think? That's all I want to know. 
what do you think about the title? Yeah, yeah I, will. I don't know. Like you know, like I said earlier, I think the color red kind of pops up. I think probably like with a a, a lot of stuff. I think you know there. I, I think there is something about the color red that stands out more than other colors in film, or maybe it has to do with the way it's like filtered or whatever. Um, and and I guess part of what's interesting too is if this is his first color film and he's kind of making sort of drawing your attention like hey there's a color here and you're gonna you're gonna follow it through you know and um i wish i had paid more close attention to what was going on every time there was red in there but i feel like maybe that's part of what it has to do with is there's some some story that's following the color some some thread that's following the color red um and yeah and yeah like the the idea of of red being I mean, the idea of the desert being kind of like the isolation. Like, I was thinking of her as being the the red desert, you know, like the kind of like, you know, like the, you know, the, the saying, no man is an island, but this woman is a desert. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Deserted island. <laughs> what about you, Zeke? Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to add, uh, just going to third that it doesn't make sense but then a quick google search uh said that the original title was supposed to be pale blue and green um and then they went with red desert because it was more evocative so i would agree Mm -hmm. because the pale blue and green is what she's kind of looking at as colors to paint the shop right and i think that that i mean color she wears right yeah she wears that green yeah Mm-hmm. But the, I, I think, like, that, go ahead. No, yeah, I'm sorry, I cut you off. But I was just going to say, I feel like if you go with that name, like Colors of the Shop, it, it I don't know. I was going to say it leads you to believe that it's a different movie or a different story or it places your focus somewhere else. But then I stopped myself because, like, Red Desert also made you believe it was a different, you know what I mean? I don't know that either of those makes sense. I, I get more of a dystopic idea from Red. I think that's what mm. made me watch the movie was, oh, Red Desert. That sounds sinister as fuck, right? Like, yeah. And mm-hmm. the color that really pops, literally, I mean, the the red room is is such an evocative. And that That's where the action happens. Mm-hmm. I think it might represent that red for that room and desert to feel the feeling of desertedness and isolation and alienation that she feels the dissociation i i think those match but like pale pale blue and green would not would not uh sell as many tickets i don't think yeah. <laughs> um i did have some quotes i wanted to to just say um so when juliana is telling zeller about her friend in quotation marks in the hospital she's uh, um zeller asked what did she tell you how she, it made her feel and she answers, uh, like there was no ground beneath her, like she was sliding down a slope, sinking always on the verge of drowning with nothing around her. We have another connection to um, uh, under the skin. It's like very evocative, that 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 kind of feeling unslipped, unmoored. I, I, I thought that was a beautiful line. Um, when uh, Zeller kind of uh, word vomits at her about not feeling at home anywhere and shuddering from piece, place to place, she says, that's some bunch of words you strung together. I, I love that line. I think that's so... <laughs> it's so matter of... She has these moments where Zeller is a great kind of foil for her because the things he says makes her seem more human. 
and it makes her feel more human. She's like, well, that's certainly a statement you just made there. I, I just love the phrase. It's just very, there's a great natural reaction to, to that kind of overshare, I guess, that he has, which is I, I thought was really fascinating. Um, there's also towards the end, she says at one point, I don't know what people expect me to do with my eyes. And I just think that's so brilliant. I don't know if it's just like living in a mask <laughs> COVID situation is like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my eyes. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my face. I, I don't know. Like it, it, it starts this sequence of like, she's talking about crying and like reacting to things, but I, I just thought it was a very, it's not a phrase I've ever heard before, but it, it rang very true. Very, very resonated very deeply was, I don't know what to do with my eyes, where to look. It will, Will Graham says something about that in Hannibal is like, eyes are weird. Is that a cyst? <laughs> are you getting glaucoma? You look at all these weird, the veins are weird, the lashes are weird. I I, I don't know. I, it, I just thought that was interesting. Oh, and then I like this kind of reversion or inversion reference allusion to Merchant of Venice. She makes a, a, a reference to, if you prick me, you do not suffer. Instead of if you prick me, do I not bleed? Um, yeah, that's what I was expecting for sure. I I just I loved that because so much of her interactions with people are <laughs> her concern is about their humanity and not her own because she's dissociating and she doesn't feel human anymore. The concern is like if you hurt me, it doesn't affect you. Like it, like it's it's just an interesting. I think that also calls back to what the son does. The son tells a lie, and it doesn't affect him, but it, yeah. it cuts her super deep. And I think that that's something that's like this. This thousand tiny cuts have kind of just continued to help with this unmooring process. So there's that. <laughs> I wonder how many of those, um, especially the eyes one, are. I guess aided by the translation or what they would sound like, you know, how, how that, because like you said, that is a very unusual yeah. phrase that you don't typically hear. I wonder if in the original Italian, if it carries that same kind of meaning or uh, difference or, you know what I mean? I'm just curious. It's really yeah. interesting. Cause if I feel like any listeners sort of float in Italian. <laughs> yeah. Scott and I were talking about this a bit that like Richard Harris speaks the, his lines in English and it, everything's overdubbed with Italian. Um, so it's really interesting that I think this, this script and, and kind of the shooting process was very much in translation. I'm really, I would be curious to see if they translate exactly. And I mean, obviously there's not a one-to-one -one translation of any language, let alone Italian and English, but the idea that, what what's closest or i mean we all there's always different translators who take different things like Coyote's had a million different translators and uh just works in translations always have always have that um and it works so well with i don't know if again that was a result of the director but it just felt you know you probably could have convinced me that he knew italian and just yeah. spoke it for the film it he's acted his ass off too. Like he, yeah. like he's delivering those lines, and even with the dubs, it it looks like the same delivery. I the dubbing yeah. was incredible too. I thought that, was, except for the technical difficulty Tim seemed to have, it, it yeah, seemed yeah. like there's a great because kung fu movies can be bad about like 
rushing a line to make it match with the lips. Like there, there's the, kind of a speed of delivery that in, in bad dubs, there's that tendency. This just seemed very natural, very well paced. Sorry, just a result I, I of the language. Know. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was going to say there was a German show I watched. It was the the lips not matching, and not even in a in the sense of rushing the line, but just in that they would say a sound that you would open your mouth for while the character was closing their mouth. It just it <laughs> felt like I was having pimp problem the whole time, and I couldn't stand it. And I had to switch back to the subtitles. <laughs> but uh no yeah it's it just the 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 dubbing the performance all of it was just pitch perfect right here so the actual quote was what do people expect me to do with my eyes i put a stamp on it like what a poetic phrase i i and again like the merchant of venice thing i mean isn't the common question to be what am i supposed to do with my hands right right when yep. you're like standing in a room but instead my eyes Right. Yeah. Well, what what else are you going to do with them? Leave them in your head. Right? Don't don't put them somewhere. You know what? How much can your eyes do? They can just kind of move around slightly. But then on the other hand, they can do so much. Yeah. It communicates so much. Yeah. For some reason, that made me think of a uh, there's a Monty Python sketch where he's trying. They're, the whole premise of the 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 episode is like they're trying to use the thesaurus to use words that aren't in every other sketch. It's like, what do I do with my hands? These maulers. These mitts these bunches of five for some reason that made me think like the eyes are the windows to the soul but hands can be mitts and bunches of five <laughs> sorry I, I i don't know why i'm disassociating pretty strongly um well with that we'll we'll go to my favorite segment and i'll put it right here it is it is time for another situational movie recommendation what movie does your favorite movie quote come from pause well, for first laughter. i've got to remember what my favorite, <laughs> what movie favorite quote, quote is. is right we could take a top two i don't know what mine is we can just sit in it for a minute i just i was thinking about that it's like oh that's a good i don't know this about these guys I'm sure we'll get something from Fight Club or Matrix from Tim. It's both, Maybe. actually. It's you both. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Tim, enough time has passed. It's now a throwback. We're not in right. in it with all of the Matrix. Like it's been so long right. since we've talked about it. I like. I'm okay to throw back to that. <laughs> so, so Tim, and, yeah, his... and, and I mean, yeah, there obviously there are tons of lines and, and quotes from from both films, but. I think the two that popped into my head, which I think are the two most relevant and, and poignant, um, from Fight Club, it's uh, only it's only after you've lost everything that you're free to do anything. Um, which was like I think especially poignant because it was when I was like in college, and it's this idea of like moving away from home. You know, you're kind of like out on your own. You don't have your parents kind of telling you what you what you're supposed to be doing. You also don't have to deal with the judgment of your parents when you do things you're not supposed to do, you know? So it made sense on that level of like, you know, as a, as a metaphor for something more toned down and normal than actually losing everything. Um, but there definitely were times through that part of my life where, you know, you definitely kind of feel that some of the, the good things you have in your life are still constraints, you know, whether it's like being in a relationship, you know, and, um, or, or just, you know, having friends and like the expectations of friends, you know, you kind of, you grow out of living up to the expectations of your parents and you grow into 
having, you know, expectations from your friends, way that, ways that they're expecting you to react and things that you're supposed to value. Um, so, but yeah, but then even, even in general, like, the, yeah, the only way you can really rise above that is if you really do lose everything, then you really have nothing holding you back. And I never quite got to that point, but that was always like a, an interesting concept to me. And, you know, I think it's got some Buddhism in it too, you know, it's not, it's a lot darker than the Buddhism perspective, you know, of like not having attachments and not, you know, kind of like that attachment is being the, like, the, like leading the suffering. Um, but yeah, so there's that one. And then, um, unfortunately no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Um, <laughs> which I think, you know, for me ended up being, uh, sort of not just the, within the matrix movie itself and how, um, you know, the, the first time I saw that, I feel like that was like Morpheus's way of like tricking Neo into having to take the pill and like, Oh, I got to get you out. But it's also the idea that, you know, with just with metaphor in general, like, you know, you can't kind of explain what a metaphor represents to somebody. Like each person has to see that how that metaphor connects to them. Like that's the point of it. You know, so, you know, yeah. So like the idea of like, you know, no one can be told what a metaphor represents. You have to see it for yourself. And, and even within the movie of the matrix, like, like what the matrix, what the metaphor of the matrix is, like each person is going to connect with it on a different level. And I connected with it on a different level every time I watched it, you know, whatever I was going on, whatever was going on in my life. It's like, oh, this is this thing that is a system that is sort of controlling us all you know, keeping us trapped in it so that it can thrive and where are the batteries for it. But again, I think with any, any metaphor, um, you know, which hit me later when it's like, yeah, like it wasn't about, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I sometimes think back to the scene in Parks and Rec when Amy, when Leslie Nope goes on a date with, um, Will Arnett and one of his lines is, you know, Hey, have you ever seen that movie, the matrix? It's like 99% real. like like i was like oh shit i was i was that guy for a while and you know and kind of breaking out from that point like it's not the point is not asking ourselves what if we're all brains in nevada chemicals it's about like you know the idea of looking at the surface of what reality is what people are telling you reality is and kind of going beneath that to what what is actually important um and again that's different for everyone you know the the thing that is a matrix is different in everyone's life. The system that they're trapped in that's using them as a slave is different. And what the real world is, is different for everyone. What you're supposed to be breaking through to. Um, so yeah, those two. <laughs> I have a funny one. It's not real, but from blade Trinity, uh, come guzzling thunder cunt is about as primo a line has ever been delivered in a movie. <laughs> One of my favorites is from Birdcage, and it's when um, Robin and Nathan are sitting on this bus stop, and this giant ship's going behind them, and they're talking about the Palimony Agreement and their love, and uh, uh, Armand, who is uh, Robin's character, says, there's only one place in the world I call home, and it's because you're there. So take it. What difference does it make if I say you can stay or you can say I can stay? It's ours. That whole beautiful speech that he makes about their love and yeah you're not you're not new you're not thin 
but you, you make me laugh and I got to sell my plot and fucking wherever and get in that shithole Las Copa. So I never miss a laugh. I just, I love that line so much. And that part of the film is just so important and so beautiful. And Robin just plays it like it, it, it dances, man. It's such a great line. Zeke, what about you? It's a hard one to follow up on. That's such a good one. Um, I don't know. I'm torn. Uh, I, I went with the Forrest Gump one in my high school yearbook, and I wish I went with a, a not a not that one. Um, <laughs> but I went with the one um, about like, are we like I don't, know, I don't remember what it is, but it's like, are we floating along on a breeze or do we whatever that one? Um, but there's other ones that I like more that capture that kind of same essence from. Um, from other similar movies in that time, but like the Ferris Bueller quote, um, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. That's a fun one. Or uh, we knew we were going there back to the future. Um, Doc's quote about uh, your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has your future is what you, whatever you make it. So make it a good one. Um, I don't know. Just all those kind of like happy, optimistic, forward looking ones. Um, that I like better than the happy, optimistic, forward-looking Forrest Gump one that I used. But those stick with me for whatever reason. Um, and then there's no crying in baseball from <laughs> their own, just as another... She's crying, sir! <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky, because there's so many... I don't know, then you'll get on... There's, like, so many good quotes from that movie, and, um, I don't know, yeah, lots of quotable movies. So I was trying to figure out, like, which are the most meaningful to me and then just put your uh to go with another funny one because joel had a good funny one um uh, fast and the furious uh, <laughs> just love what is this guy sandwich crazy <laughs> like that just anytime anyone wants to say why is this guy gatekeeping the tuna fish sandwiches <laughs> <laughs> right? this guy's here ordering sandwiches a lot was this guy sandwich crazy that's the kind of guy who would wear that hurley hat we saw at the flea market see that's exactly, exactly. the dude <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but it's just yeah it's more applicable applicable in life and you think of, like we had a work retreat the other day and we had um sandwiches but it was like it was the the retreat kind of catering style where they're all little cut up pieces. So people are going back for seconds and thirds. And I just wanted to bust that one out and just yell it during the meeting. Like is this guy sandwich crazy, but I could not. So that one. I have one more little one. It's my favorite delivery of a line ever. It means nothing. It's, it's in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they realize that they're the, the staff is too short or, oh my gosh, it's, yes. or it's too tall. They're digging in the wrong place. Yeah. They're digging in the wrong place. The way he says it, it's just like oh, this musical I, dance sorry. of a delivery. I love the way he says, they're digging in the wrong place. He's so happy and Indy's so happy. It's great. Yes, absolutely. He starts it into a song. Sala is Sala's classic. I love that line so much. <laughs> What about you, Scott? In keeping, I mean, I have to mention Sean Connery then from The Last Crusade, right? I, I'm sorry, son. They got us. <laughs> After he takes out the tail with yeah, the machine gun. the tail of their own plane. Oh. I'm as human as the next man. I was the next man. It's <laughs> <laughs> such a great movie. <laughs> great movie. But um, the, the big one, I guess, actually comes from Casablanca. But it's 
it's I know it's kind of cheesy, but it's the whole if you don't get on that plane, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. And I what a just what a sudden rush of perspective that line gives me mm-hmm. about oh, like you know, you look at something and go, Yeah, this is good. And then you maybe look ahead and go, Yeah, that'll still be good, but you stop a day in or a week in and you don't think you know, far beyond. Right. And I know that's just such a literal interpretation of this cheesy line, but I, I love it. Oh, that's a great one. Flicks. That's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Soon and for the rest of your life just hits hard and it's brilliant. I'm just thinking more Nathan Lane's. What, what do you want me to dress and drag and do the hula? Luau! <laughs> just great fucking line from Lion King. You can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> <laughs> what a just again what a it's, it's sort of that perfectly encapsulates dr strangelove oh it's watched, so good I don't, I don't remember if you were with us zeke when we did that one but, i wasn't i don't think i was there for that one but i i've seen that one a few times yeah. that that's, just perfectly encapsulates the absurdity of the entire film right that's yeah. george raft who says that right <laughs> no who is it that says delivers that that that's Patton, right Patton says that oh yeah what is his name? Here. This is the war room. Like, what a... Of course you can't, but also, like, God, what a what a <laughs> stupid sentence to put together. But, like, a true sentence at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <sighs> Precious bodily fluids. <laughs> Tim, did you have a funny one? Do you have a favorite? Well... Is it, it's a carriage house from fanboys. That, that did pop into my head. Yes, um, Daddy, would you like some sausage? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that the funny one? And there, there are definitely better lines in Freddy Got Fingered. That's, that's fair. Um, I loved that movie like so one, much. I don't know that the quote, so but it's when he's trying to. Yeah, when he's trying to explain to her because she just wants to suck his dick, and he's like. If you're going to do what you want to do, then you will have sucked 200% more dicks than dates we've been on. Because he's like, you know, he wants to go on a date before she sucks his dick, you know? And it's like, and he's trying to, like, logic his way out of a blowjob and into going on a date with her. It's just, it's so perfect, like, the the, the way he has to explain it to her. <laughs> that movie is so um, good. <laughs> that would, uh... Or just, and it's not so much the quote, it's just like the way he said, when he's like trying to convince her that he's a big businessman, he's like, I have some, some graphs and some charts. You can look at that. You know, the stocks here, their stocks are very low and sometimes they're very high. You know, you could look at some graphs, you know, and <laughs> just the nonsense the of what he, what he thinks is important, you know. <laughs> that was a good one, Joel. Yeah. That was a good topic. I'm sure yeah. we'll bring it back, like, like, Quotes are in yeah. Like, just that, be, what are some great quotes you're thinking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you guys for watching Red Desert. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. I I've been like since I watched that one. I I was like I really want to share it because I it's just the cinematography is is outstanding. And I like we will be the the second podcast ever to do an episode on it so i don't know we're in that pantheon the other guy didn't like it too much so we i i eagerly await our invitation from the italian film institute (laughs) i think antonioni kind of he was good early and i think people moved on to things at like 
he's a building block to these other kind of filmmakers. I think Fellini gets a lot more. Like Fellini's great. I I guess I'm <laughs> what I've seen. I've been okay. This is fine. Like I but. Antonioni really like unlocked like oh this is Italian cinema this is the, the potential here this is the camera techniques that are really innovative and I, I just fell in love with the way he communicates with the camera and how he reveals things and divides things and I I was really excited to get to share it with you guys and it, this has been great so I uh, thank you guys for watching it thank you for bringing it and next up is Scott oh yeah I ran into this problem where I was. I went through like six films that I wanted to bring you all, and they don't stream. Um, <laughs> well, Need so that I hard landed, content. <laughs> well, I landed on, like I said, this this film reminded me of The Conformist, which is phenomenal, and also on Canopy. But I thought I kind of want to change it up. I don't want to throw another Italian film at you just back to back. You know, it's part of why we're here, right? Is that we jump around all across the different types of films. So instead of one type of confusing, I'm going with a different type of depressing. <laughs> um, we're going to watch Night and Fog, which is a Holocaust oh. film. Uh, period. And it's just, it is not fiction. There is no plot. It is informational slash documentary. You know, distinctions between the words. That's, that's it. It is 33 minutes. Um, it was made in 1955 here. I'm looking at Wikipedia. Released in 1955. It's a French film. I'm sorry, Tim. It's subtitled again. That's fine. I mean, yeah, um, I'll do it. <laughs> no, yeah. And I, that, that's it. There's no, there's no but here. It's just a 33 minute informational film about the Holocaust. It's one of the earliest in that regard. Um, and it's a mixture of footage shot at the concentration camps, quote unquote, present day. So 1955, present day, obviously at the time and of actual archival footage of the Holocaust that should have shot by the Allies and footage shot by the Nazis. Wow. Um, so it's it's all there. Uh, I've mentioned my Holocaust film class before. This was the first film we watched in it as our starting point, so it's going to be my microcosm of that class crammed into our our podcast. But um, I assume that's, that's, don't watch it happy. It. And I mean, don't watch no, it sad. It's, it's just <laughs> literally, it's it's literally the Holocaust. Duh, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's graphic. Wow. Um, in in that real way, you know. Again, it, it's graphic because it has real footage, but this footage was also shot in the 1940s, right? So it's not quite, you know, saving Private Ryan beach landing detail in your face, if that makes sense. But right. it's, you know, worse because it's real. Um, I just that's it. I I'm sorry. I'm gonna be mean. We're gonna do it. We're gonna talk about it. Um, and I think there might not be a lot to talk about with regard to this film in particular, so much as it will cause broader conversation. I, I would say I'm not looking forward to watching it. I am looking forward to discussing. It. Right, right. <laughs> so the only two other sort of notes pre pre film notes I have for you are that a in 1955 the camps were in ruin the concentration camps because they were just left. There was no, uh, I, I'm digging up from my class and professor was discussing, you know, there was no movement to turn them into museums or commemorative locations. Instead, they were simply abandoned and left for the earth to cover back up. So the present day footage is not, I mean, it's just, this is what it is, right? It's just, it's abandoned facilities and it doesn't have any, any monuments or plaques or things like that, that you might expect nowadays you know, from if you go to take a tour of Auschwitz, say, right? It's not quite as 
as formal. Um, some of the opening lines, right? The only visitor to the blocks is the camera. A strange grass covers the paths once trod by inmates because there's just nothing, well, not nothing, right? The buildings are big. Like you said, Joel, the buildings last. But from, you know, if you have a, an expectation of what you see present day or in the news when there are things about the Holocaust or even what you see in films like Schindler's List, you're not getting that. You're getting abandonment. Um, and that's not cinematic. That's just how it was. So, you know, there you go. Um, and then my only other point of warning, not even warning, again, was it's, you know, those really old Disney movies or, or sort of like Peter and the Wolf where the yeah. music feels like it's a separate track. This has that exact same feel because that was the technology of the time. And it was really bizarre to me the first time I watched it because it put me in mind of these cheery children's stories. So I, if that happens to you, don't feel bad. It is just sort of a product of the time um, and of our past exposure. Yeah. And I thought I had another note actually, but I don't remember it. Oh, just from Wikipedia, Night and Fog, the title um, in French, you know, Louis et Brouillard, but from the German, Nacht und Nebel, Night and Fog, for the name of the program of abductions and disappearances. Wow. So, in case you were wondering where the title comes from, there you go. Um, and then, as if this, my own rambling hadn't been enough, just to be specific, a warning to our listeners. This is going to be graphic. And it's going to be bad. It's... I guess the trigger warning, right? Yes, this is yeah. literally the Holocaust. We're going to talk about it, so please be ready. Um, but I think we're going to talk about it very effectively, and especially about film and how film handles history very effectively. So I'm very excited for all of that. Like you said, Joel, very excited to discuss it um, and to depress everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, pretty thoroughly so it's gonna be um, hard to find a favorite scene in that one <laughs> uh, oh yeah i don't i mean again it might not even we might not do to that because it's really like i said just a lot of voiceover over either present day footage or archival footage so that might not really the film might just it might not be possible the situational <laughs> is going to be just what there aren't scenes my situational question will be what film are we going to watch to feel better after this <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no i'm i'm really looking forward to that discussion it's going to be really powerful i'm i'm grateful that it's 33 minutes <laughs> yeah already in advance and like as am I. that's yeah mm-hmm. awesome yes an informational soul crushing experience is uh is what i bring to you next time you're all welcome aren't you so glad i'm back <laughs> scott came back swinging he's like <laughs> <laughs> no yeah um that is also on canopy so you'll find it there um, we, we have a we have a guest episode in the works, right? Nothing to announce yet, but we yep. have one lined Coming up. Soon. I know we haven't had any in quite a long time. Not since you, Zeke, I think. Have we had a special guest? <laughs> no, no I don't think around. so. Yeah. Zeke's good so. at shutting down segments. He's like, no longer guests. <laughs> now I <laughs> I am become yeah. host now. <laughs> so that's some good news. So anyway, we hope you all uh, enjoyed our podcast and that if you watched Red Desert, you also enjoyed that. Uh, hopefully you'll be with us next time and until then listeners good night bye 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 did you know movie mumble has its very own twitter account please follow us on twitter at movie mumble ntg and tweet at us with questions reviews or recommendations of things you'd like us to watch next